Hi, I'm Scott. Welcome to the Synthetic Dreams podcast. From electronic to post-punk, hip-hop to rock. On this show, I interview musicians from a wide range of different musical genres. I hope you're all keeping well. My guest this week is the very lovely and talented DJ producer Mark Moore, who towards the late 80s had massive success with his group S Express. Some amazing tracks, the theme for S Express, Superfly Guy and, and more. And before then, he was a DJ at the now legendary club the Mud Club, uh, as well as uh, a night at the Heaven Night Club. And over the years, he's remixed so many great artists and bands. Not content with being an amazing musician and DJ, he's also written articles for various publications over the years. Uh, Mark, alongside Martin Green, created a live mixtape as a soundscape for the horror show at the Somerset House. And this wonderful exhibition, which started at the end of October, runs until Sunday the 19th of February, and it's definitely one to check out. So without further ado, here he is, the wonderful Mr. Mark Moore. Joining me. Oh, pleasure. Maybe I'd like to just start off, because I always like to ask the guests that are on, they kind of like to go back to the beginning and sort of like find out when they were first aware of music. And so when, when you sort of got that bug and that love of music... Do you know, I, I just remember music always being in the, in the house because my mum was a huge music fan um, and she was into all kinds of stuff, but she had all these James Brown albums, all these like Atlantic albums, Motown and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I remember going to school one day, aged about five, singing um, So Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud <laughs> at the school playground, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, yeah, I immediately took to those records. Um, and this sounds like, I, you know, I was, I was really cool at the age of five. I also loved all the all the crap that she had as well. <laughs> you know, she had things like Nana Muscori and... <laughs> things like that. Uh, she she just liked pop music, I guess, or things that made her feel good. So she had all kinds of stuff. I remember yeah. listening to um, um, Vanessa Redgrave singing Where Have All the Flowers Gone on the seven-inch single. And uh, That's a good tune. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the more crappy stuff she had, you know, because, you know, she, she had cool stuff, but I don't want to make it make out that, oh, we only listen to cool music. <laughs> You know, we were listening to a lot of nonsense as well. Uh, but I was also really, yeah, I somehow gravitated to all that, you know, Sam and Dave, Hold On, I'm Coming, uh, Aretha Franklin. And I also gravitated to all the movie soundtracks. So I was obsessed with South Pacific. I'm going to wash that man right out of right out of my hair. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, obsessed with the Oliver soundtrack and obsessed with Mary Poppins. So I think my first phrase into getting my mum to buy vinyl for me was like all the Walt Disney albums, um, you know. And she thought I was too young to have the real thing, so she'd buy me the imitation ones, the cover version ones. <laughs> you know, I remember being re suddenly realising, you know, after going to see the film again, because he didn't have 
videos in those days or stream on demand. Yeah. So you had to go to the cinema to see the film again. I remember thinking, someone else is singing the song. It's not the same voice as on my album. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I complained to her. Yeah. She explained why. And I actually managed to get the proper Mary Poppins album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, so so she kind of set me off with a with a really good base of of loving music. Um, you know, and I was always into the uh, the you know James Brown has stayed stayed with me forever. You know, all that all that stuff and the Motown, and also getting ready to go to school, we'd be listening to the radio, and there'd be things like. Um, uh, David Bowie's Oh You Pretty Things. But I think it might be the Peter Noon version because I think that was the hit at the time. That's right. Uh, but they play some great things like Space Oddity and um, Changes and uh, Life on Mars was just blew my mind at the time. Um, awesome. And of course you had all the glam stuff like Sweet, uh, Blockbuster, I was obsessed with. Uh and then, you know, he had all the glam stuff like rock, Gary Clitter, rock and roll. Um, you had, uh, oh, things like, going back a bit earlier, uh, things like um, Bob and Marcia doing um, Nina Simone's Young, Gifted and Black. Uh, so all that kind of scar stuff was huge, double barrel and uh, things like that. You know, we loved all that. And you'd go at the fairground and... Uh, they just play the most amazing music, which was all the stuff I'd mentioned, you know, all the glam stuff, and then all the disco stuff that just started coming out. It seemed to be at fairgrounds, the same for me growing up. Music. Yeah, so important, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rock Your Baby, you know, um, Casey and the Sunshine Band, that's the way I like it. Uh, you know, George McRae's Rock Your B Baby blew my mind at the time. You know, I'd play it over and over. Um, I imagine get a cassette player later on <laughs> so you could record off the radio. That was a bit later, actually. I'm getting confused here. But, yeah, um, so, and also I remember, I think one of my earliest recollections of music was just hearing on the radio the Beatles' Hey Jude, and it just seemed to go on forever, and it was the first record that made me feel happy and sad at the same time. And I remember thinking, kind of feel really really sad but Sorry. happy <laughs> and that has stayed with me forever that's exactly how i feel when i listen to it, it has got that quality yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So uplifting it's a strange yeah yeah when you really analyze that that's yes so when did so, you, yeah yeah so i know that you um you enjoyed you went sort of through, through punk didn't you and you enjoyed going to did you go to many yeah. punk gigs when punk was around yeah, I, I went to loads of punk gigs. Um, Susan the Banshees sort of clash about 50 times. Wow. Uh, the Splits about 30 times. Well, loads of times. Um, you name it. I saw, yeah. I saw them, The Damned. Um, Big bands. I never saw The Pistols, though, because I got into it just that much too late. <laughs> but and I, was, and I was young as well. So what you've seen, the list of bands then are I mean, I love Susie and the Banshee. I've stayed with listening to Susie and the Banshees, you know, when you go through phases, but they're one yeah. of the music still sounds fantastic. Yeah. Did you hear the mix I did for of Susie and the Banshees? Where I me did. I saw the, the there was a video online as well. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, mixed, it, we yeah. mixed it for Sue Webster's art show. That's right. Yeah. I saw um, 
It's great. I'd love to put that out, but I, I need to obviously yeah. speak to one of the banshees. <laughs> so, do you see? Did you see them a few times back in the day? I saw them in the nineties, but kind of still saw them, but not not in the not in the yeah, yeah 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 but yeah. Um, you know, I saw them at places like uh, you know, uh, a place in Clapham and the Vortex and. Uh, one of my favourites was the Rainbow when they played the Rainbow. They had the Human League supporting them, who we we just bought their their first single, Being Boiled, and we're, we're like, yeah, this band's great, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also Nico was on the bill with her harmonium, and um, I, you know, and I I got heavily into the Velvet Underground, so I was quite excited to see Nico, and she's just playing this droning kind of. And punks were going right up to her, standing in front of her on the stage, and they'd gob at her. And I remember being really appalled at this, you know. I was like, this is Nico from the Velvet Underground. I was only 14, but I knew she was someone to be like, you know. Legend. Yeah, exactly. Even then I thought, you know, this is a legend. You can't be doing that. But they just didn't, get, you know, didn't want to know. It wasn't yeah. punk, you know. So, yeah, that was the most brilliant gig. And as soon as the Banshees came on, everyone... So got out of their seats and ran forward and they started ripping up the seats so they could dance so all these seats got ripped up and they'd like be carrying them over the heads of people so they could throw them into the pit at the front and uh, at one point there was just seats flying through the air like missiles it was just insane <laughs> what a memory uh, and I ended up um, uh, pogoing at the front and somehow I fell into the uh, the orchestra pit and I was like hanging on for dear life to these bars, and then fell down. These bouncers grabbed hold of me, and I was I was just terrified they were going to throw me out of the building. And I was like, "No, no, you can't throw me out of the building!" And they just took me out to the front again. Thank goodness. Yeah, it was insane. Um, and I, I always say that the season of Banshees were my my Bay City Rollers, my first kind of obsession. <laughs> you know, everyone was was, Fantastic. was fanatical about some band or the other, but that was mine. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, st I still love the Banshees. It's funny you interested you said about Nico, you know, and the, the trouble she had at the gig, because one of my favourite artists of all time, or acts, I should say, is Suicide. Oh, yeah. And I think they, had, they were they were hated, weren't they? Because they came out, you know, with Martin Rev on the synth floor, and then, yeah. uh, you know, Alan Vega, and then these punks just, like, hated them. So that, yes. that's probably the bands I'm attracted to, the ones that people didn't quite get. I, yeah. I like the sound of them. Yeah. yeah I, love I remember them. The, the first time I saw Suicide was supporting The Clash at the Music Machine. And I just remember thinking, um, I, I didn't know what to make of it. It was just this kind of like this jackhammer. Yeah. It sounded like you're on the construction site. And then Alan Vega going, you can, and it really wasn't, the sound wasn't great. With all this echo on it, blah, 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 blah. and it was just like, what is this? And I, I didn't hate it, but I didn't know quite what to make of it. Um, it was just this droning kind of. Um, but I was curious enough to check out their album, um, you know, and I just fell in love with Frankie Teardrop. I play it over and over and repeat, and my mum get driven mad. Terrifying. <laughs> uh, so what's that? It's terrifying, isn't it, when you think about yeah, it? Yeah, terrifying, yeah. Yeah, you can't really play at a family gathering. It's not like... Yeah. But I, re I remember the, the, the atmosphere at the music machine. There was a few skinheads there, 
And I remember that on one skinhead suddenly looked really crazed. The music suddenly did something to him that made him completely lose the plot. Maybe he was on something. And he was just wandering around, staring into people's eyes with these wide eyes. And we thought, oh, God, he's going to beat someone. He's going to get in a fight. And there were fights. Fights ended up starting up. <laughs> and bottles were flying at the band. It was, you managed it was to avoid those. You managed to avoid all the fighting and then... And- I did manage to avoid most of the fights, but I'd, I'd seen so many, so many fights. And some sometimes there'd be, there'd be bloodbaths. Yeah, uh, you know, I remember going to see the monochrome set uh, at the YMCA in London, and all, all the Adam and the Ants fans would go and see the monochrome set because they had members who were in, in Adam and the Ants. And this was probably 1978, so it's a bit post-punk. Yeah. And it's not like their music was violent or anything. It was, you know, it was all quite quite uh, arty and jolly <laughs> but this huge fight broke out and there was blood all over the floor it was insane right. yeah it, it could happen at the most random times in the most random gigs yeah, yeah. With a, a really great musical background and then so how did you when did you start getting into this kind of djing and stuff like that when did that happen uh the djing thing happened because uh, I was helping Tasty Tim carry his records to the mug club. And every now and again, he'd have a toilet break and let me put on a couple of records. And I'd, I'd bring my own records down as well and say, here, let's put this on. They'd put it on and people would love it. And then um, the mug club expanded uh, to two floors and Tim was going to do the top floor. Didn't want to do the whole night by himself. So he asked Philip Salon if I could do it, um, you know, and he was going away that week. So I had to do the top floor by myself uh, as an experiment. And Philip Salon rang me up constantly going, you better not fuck up my club, <laughs> which was like a bit nerving for someone who'd never DJed before. <laughs> and uh, I did it. Everyone went crazy. They went completely crazy. So th- th- I-, I got the job with Tim, DJing every week with Tim upstairs. While the main floor was downstairs. So we had to do an alternative to main floor music. So we played glam rock, we played, uh, you know, disco, early 70s disco, we played um, sort of more electronic y, high energy things that weren't being playing downstairs. And we played stuff from movie soundtracks. Like I would play from South Pacific, I'm going to wash that man right out of my head. Everyone would start jiving to it because there's that whole rockabilly thing going on at the time. So yeah. people were into the kind of like, you know, things with a bit of a swing beat, rockabilly beat, rockabilly beat. Yeah. Um, it was great. And it was such a mixture of people at the Mar Club from post punkers, post new romantics. It was 1983 when it started. Yeah. Um, to rockabillies, to, you know, hard time, people in the hard times look with the ripped up jeans. Um, and on the only night of the Mug Club, Malcolm McLaren uh, uh, did a barn dance lesson uh, really? on, the, on the upstairs floor. We taught everyone how to barn dance to the, the um, barn dance version of, of um, Buffalo Girls. So that was incredible. What? A, wow, really? That's yeah. amazing. Because yeah. you fixed one of his songs, didn't you? Is that right? Yes. Yes, I, 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 as a you know, fourteen-year-old punk rocker, I'd go down the King's Road and spend the day there. And um, I, you know, I plucked up the courage uh, the first time I went down the King's Road to go into Seditionaries. Um, and Jordan was working there with her amazing makeup and bouffant beehive hairdo, 
uh, you know, and she was terrifying, you know, she was like, she was the face of punk rock uh, with her looks. Her, her autobiography is amazing as well, Defying Gravity. Um, anyway, so she was, I knew who she was just from, you know, reading up on the punk scene and everything and the devour and everything punk. And I went in there and she she just, oh, hello. And then we got chatting and she was absolutely lovely. And I'd help her, you know, fold up T-shirts and shut up the shop. And she'd take me to dinner with uh, Vivian Westwood, you know. <laughs> it's just it's just incredible. Oh, nice. um, so, yeah, I think I, I, Malcolm wasn't really around a, a lot in the shop at that time because he was making the rock and roll swindle great rock and roll swindle wound. Yeah. Um, but I did see him a couple of times and he gave me some really good advice because I, I was, um, he told me that I didn't need school and not to wor- bother about school. And I thought, yeah, he's right. And I walked out of all my own lessons. <laughs> uh, I think I sat, um, I sat four of them, four that I liked. And I, I got those and the rest I failed. I failed everything because I'd walked out. I remember opening the envelope um uh, where they sent you the results, and it was like fail, 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 fail. And I thought, oh, I think I might have ruined my life. <laughs> but uh, I, didn't, I didn't ever need them. So, yeah, Malcolm perhaps remembered me from back then. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did. Um, and he got in contact uh, after S Express had beca- become a hit, you know, and that, well, you know, the singles were selling, the album was selling. Um, and he got in contact and said he's done a new album and he, he'd like Mark Moore to mix, remix some of it. So um, I um, got William Orbit in because uh, I was working with him and he's one of my favourite producers. I just, I, um, you know, Rhythm King said to me, who do you, you know, is there anyone you'd like to work with? And I said, William Orbit. And they're like, who's he? And I'm like, he's amazing. He's one of my favourite producers, Torch Song. Da, 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 da. So I got together with William and working with William was just a dream. He was amazing. Um, and we did a few remixes to go um, before. I can't remember. No, that's right. He remixed Hey Music Lover. And he had all these edits of it, and he he uh, he was just didn't know what to do in the end. He rang me up and played me all the edits down the phone. I said, "Okay, if you cut there at one minute six, one minute twenty seven, and then cut it into this one at blah blah blah," and we edited it over the phone, and that was the twelve inch mix. <laughs> anyway, so I got him in, and on the first day, uh, Malcolm flew to England so he could come and oversee the remixes because uh, we said we needed some new vocals. It didn't have any of his vocals on, yeah. um, and we worked at William's studio. Malcolm just arrived, and he sat down and he and he started telling us stories about the Sex Pistols, about his love affair with Lauren Hutton in 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 Hollywood, about you know oh you know he's going oh I don't know what she sees in me she's obsessed with me <laughs> I'm completely unsuited to her <laughs> you know but he adored her too um, he just told us all these stories the whole day went by and we we're still sitting down listening to stories but be like oh this is great we got no work done. So the second day, I actually threw him out of the studio. <laughs> I threw him out of the studio so we could get a ba- you know something a bass going because he he played us the demo for Deep in Vogue, and it was awful. It was a live band and it had Bootsy Collins on it, which you know. But I think it was too many cooks, too many people, too many live things going on. Uh, it sounded like you know if you're on the cruise ship, if if the cruise ship band played Love Is the Message. It just sounded really cheesy and kind of... So we got rid of practically everything except maybe a saxophone. And uh, and then he casually said, 
oh, I've got these um, these rashes of this film that, um, that's being made called... Um, um, oh, God, I forgot the name, the legendary film, which is ridiculous. The voguing film, Paris is Burning. <laughs> Sorry, my brain. Okay, Paris is Burning. He had rashes of it uh, from Jenny Livingstone, the director. And um, he, he said, oh, you know, um, maybe you'd like to sample something. So I took them home and I was like, yeah, we're sampling the fuck out of this. So I got all the bits that we wanted to sample. And um, I'd never heard of the voguing scene and the videos just blew my mind. So, you know, I hooked, you know, Malcolm introduced us to the whole voguing scene in New York. Um, anyway, then we were going, we were going, oh, we need it to sound like a Malcolm McLaren record. It doesn't really sound like a and he, and Malcolm goes, what does a Malcolm McLaren record sound like? And I'm like, well, it has you sort of ranting over the top of it or talking or whatever. So we got some vocals. Uh, we, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Willie Ninja, the Vogue, flew in from New York to come and do some stuff. And yeah, it was great. It was just really fantastic. Um, and then we put it out and it came out as a B-side in England to one of his tracks. It didn't really do much. And then in America, they put it out as an A-side and it went to number one in the Billboard dance charts. So, yeah, that was fantastic. Wow. And we, we remixed a couple more for him. Uh, uh, Something's Jumping in My Shirt uh, with Lisa Marie, which, I, which is probably one of my favourite mixes of me, me and William Orbit. Uh -huh. um, and we did a I Call a Wave, which I don't think came out um hopefully <laughs> but yeah it's great fun malcolm there's probably so many remixes you've done that you probably forget who you've remixed over the years i would imagine sometimes yeah the artists you've yeah. worked with which is incredible but jump in the timeline back again to say um s express and that massive success you had i just know what how did it feel when you <laughs> stormed up the charts and like you know oh it, massive, it, it felt fantastic <laughs> It, yeah, I mean, it felt really good. Did I go off at a tangent? Was I talking about how I was meant to be making the record? I can't remember if I went off at a tangent. This is what's I mean, the reason I ended it. up making the record was because yeah. Rhythm, Rhythm King and Mute were around the corner from where I lived. Yeah, so I'd pop in and I'd, I'd just, you know, uh, say, oh, do you want this 12-inch record you've been sent? I, I could play this at my nights. They, yeah, take the record, Mark, go on. So I'd be hanging out there. It's all good fun. Yeah. Um, but then I'd start taking them records in. And i say, you know, oh, this is really big at Taboo, Taffy, I love my radio. Why don't you sign it? And they'd um, sign it. They got their first top 10 hit. And then Tim Westwood gave me an acetate of the Beatmasters and the Cookie Crew, um, Rock the House, and he goes, oh, I can't play this. It's too housey for my hip-hop crowd. But you, you're going to love it, Mark. And I played it. Of course, everyone went crazy. So I said, you know, all my crowds are going mad over this. Sign it. They signed it. Did nothing at first. They re-released it, top 10. Um, so I got them all this stuff, Renegade Soundwave, Baby Ford. Um, you know, and they said, oh, God, you got us all these hits. And can we give you some money? And I'm like, yeah, go on. And then uh, they said, is there anything else we can do? And I said, I've got all these ideas running around my head. Put the studio. So they said, yeah, we'll do that. And uh, they said, we're going to hook you up with Pascal Gabriel. Um, he's a really great producer. He'll help you get around things. And I mean, Pascal hit it off like a dream. So, yeah, that's how it happened. Uh, we And me and Pascal, were, on our first sessions, we did uh thing from S Express, the B-sides. Uh, and, yeah, and then I think... Did we start Superfly Guy in the same session? I think that might be the next session we did. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, went to number one. 
no thanks to Radio One who refused to play it until it got to number three. <laughs> it just went um, in the charts strictly on club play, and that was it. The whole album it still sounds amazing. Oh, thank you. It was, and again, Rhythm King was saying, "Oh, they, they won't play it on the radio. Radio One won't play it on the radio because it sounds too weird." At the time, nothing sounded like that really. And they said, "Can you do a seven-inch? That's a bit more sub, you know, not as crazy and a bit more stock Aitken Waterman." So basically, we didn't want to do that, and we we handed in a really awful mix, was you know, as their seven inch replacement, and they just went, "Okay, you win, we give up, we'll leave it as it is." Yeah. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah, so it went to number one. So Radio One had to play it as it was. Um, yeah, and I remember I was in the studio working on on Superfly Guy, I think, uh, when they told me it went to number one, and it was just like. Oh, that's really nice, but I've got to finish this single. <laughs> so, so it was just like something that was going on out there somewhere, this number one business, you know. It wasn't really, really kind of like, oh, okay, you know. I I didn't start, you know, smashing up, you know, hotel rooms or anything like that. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, whatever. Um, I imagine you're that kind of guy anyway. <laughs> but, but it only occurred to me, uh, when uh, I think it was Bross Bross were living around the corner of the place that I moved to because uh, I was leading this kind of nightclub existence so I didn't come in contact with much of the real world and Bross were living around the corner and there's all these Brossette fans hanging outside their place and they went to the supermarket to hang out there and I went to get, go get my like you know, some food and some milk and stuff like that. And they all ran up screaming. And I was like, what's going on? I looked behind me to see what was going on. And I realised that they were coming for me. And it was, that was kind of like a bit of a wake up call. And you weren't wearing double denim like Ross. No, <laughs> definitely not. No. Um, so yeah, it was all, it was all a bit, you see, and I always put it down to the fact that um, just being a DJ, you're in your own little bubble in the in the kind of clubland world that is your world clubland is it is it is a tiny bubble in london for me yeah. uh and you knew all these amazing fabulous people sometimes you'd get clothes for free from designers because you were the dj at the mug club in heaven uh you know you got this attention and you got a bit uh, a bit of adulation on a tiny scale appropriate to the pond that i was living in yeah. so in a way, that was a microcosm of the whole pop, well, the whole fan thing. Yeah. Uh, so when it just moved to a bigger scale, it, I could, I kind of got the hang of it a bit, but I didn't like it on such a huge scale. It started to annoy me. Uh, yeah, and it, and it did annoy me that I couldn't go on the underground and um, get buses anymore which I happily do now, thank you, without being <laughs> harassed too yeah. much. You've got this big success and you're on Top of the Pops, which for, for younger listeners, you know, Top of the Pops is a huge deal, I remember when yeah. I was a kid. I mean, that must have been an old, a dream, being on Top of the Pops. I mean, you must have been something you watched as a kid. Top yeah, I, I, I watched Top of the Pops as a kid and I loved it. And uh, yeah, it, it, to me that, you know, if you had a hit record, it was... You know, it was top of the pops that confirmed it. It was like you you had to do it, even if the Clash refused to do it. Um, 
But I, I'd been with Taffy when Taffy, I love my radio, cut, cut the charts, and she did Top of the Pops. I went there to have a look. So I saw how it all worked and how it was actually much tinier in real life. Everything was a lot smaller um, and the stages were really near each other and suddenly you'd be shuffled over to the next stage for the next band. And, um, you know, it's almost like looking behind the the, uh, the curtain in The Wizard of Oz where you think, oh, is that it? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was a bit kind of ready for it when we did Top the Pops. And it is, you're, you're literally trapped in their studios for the whole day you're not really allowed to leave and you do all these rehearsals so they can get the camera angles right. So it's actually quite boring until you get to that three minutes of filming yeah. later on in the in the day. <laughs> yeah. Who you're on with? Which artists you were you were on with on that? Particular? I can't remember. I think the primitives were there. Because I remember liking what's her name from the primitives. Oh. Um completely off. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, uh, there must have been so many. I remember one time. One time we were on, and we were hanging out with, um, Edie Brickell. <laughs> it was very sweet. I can't remember who else was on with us. Oh, Ziggy Marley and the and the and, the, and his band. I remember when we were doing Hey Music Lover, Ziggy Marley and all his bands queued up in front of us to look and they were just had their mouths open. And then we came off and they were all shaking their hands. They were going, only in London, only in London, because the way we were dressed. Yeah, yeah, very colourful. Yeah. That's how yeah. I remember when I saw your Total Pops. Just, yeah, we all have really great outfits. <laughs> Most of those were the best time as well. You just look like you're having. Yeah, we had, we had fun. But most, most of those outfits were like just stuff we picked up or secondhand shops, you know, just stuff we cobbled together. We never had a stylist for, for God knows how long. Didn't even know about stylists in those days. So we just dressed ourselves. Your own style. You know, yeah. we'd go, oh, oh, I brought this along. Why don't you wear this? It was all done at the last minute. Nothing was planned. Um, DIY. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Around that time, maybe you did more like PA type stuff, but did you do gigs or anything like that or little? You know, we, we did a, a, a sort of elongated PA tour. Yeah, yeah they were quite. Um, yeah, we, which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, but years later, uh, Fisher Spooner were doing things like that with playback and da 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 da. And, and really, we should have done a whole, a whole show of it and just thought, you know, because I think our show was half an hour long or something. So it's not quite a gig, but, <laughs> you know, an extended PA. But it's quite theatrical as well. We did them all over the place, like Sheffield Leadmill and stuff like that. You know. What kind of venues? Like clubs? Like club? Yeah, many clubby. Um, like 12 or something and do a PA and then... Yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot of it was like that. Um, I like stuff like that. Yeah. And then we did a couple of festivals in Europe and things like that, but just the PA... Uh, so I got a taste of touring and realised I hated it, <laughs> which is why That's... I never got back to it. Well, uh, Adam, the music that you make, you're, as you say, or probably your love is the studio, isn't it? Or DJing, so yeah. You know, I think I think now I'd enjoy it more doing the live thing. Okay, you know. But at no. the time, you know, it, it wasn't in my blood at that time. Yeah. That's um, interesting. Yeah. I think the, the crazy the stuff that you've done with the you know, around this time. I mean, I remember even as a kid seeing you on a French and Saunders sketch. 
Is that yes. you in? I'm sure you were in one. Is that correct? I was. I was in this sketch. <laughs> um, the 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 cookie wrappers. That's right. That's classic. Was it the cookie wrappers? I think it was the cookie wrappers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Apparently they needed a DJ for their sketch, and Lenny Henry told them to get me. Um, so they rang up, uh, and because I wasn't a member of Equity, uh, they couldn't use me unless I was actually performing music, in which case I could use my musician's union card. Yeah. So it was illegal to have me doing an, uh, an acting role, which what it, which was what it was, uh, at all. So I had to be smuggled in in a car where I hid in the back seat. They smuggled me in and I hung out with them while they're doing their makeup and getting ready and we were chatting. I thought, oh, in a minute they're going to give me the script and I can read it and I'll have a rehearsal with them. So they led me out into this room and there's all these extras there who were the audience and it was a stage with two decks. And they were like, right, we're on, let's start shooting. And they didn't tell me anything. So I had to ad-lib the whole thing. Wow. Uh, I'm DJing for them, and and also um, before that, I'm in the dressing room with them. They didn't tell me anything, and I had to ad lib with them. Um, yeah, and it managed to make it into the show, uh, but they couldn't credit me at the end of the credits because. But the weird thing is, is it's on their greatest hits DVD, and um, I get a royalty from it <laughs> all the time. I get a royalty from Pension Saunders DVD. I wanted to ask you actually a bit about the sort of technical side of stuff. First of all, like what you enjoy, do you use like sort of the analog equipment or do you use like computer technology or do you kind of use a bit of both? Do you know, it depends what I'm doing. Um, if I can, I'd rather use analog stuff. Uh, but yeah, often you're just knocking something up quickly. Perhaps it's so easy just to like get a fake 303. <laughs> rather than set up the real 303 um yeah it just depends on what you're doing but if i'm doing that you know music you know proper tracks i'd i'd rather use the analog and do you have a favorite piece of equipment or synth you know so i i really like something as basic as the sh101 uh because i've got so many great noises out of it especially for the first album s express album but also the fact that you can wear it you know with a strap (laughs) as a guitar yeah is that the one that you see on top of the pops? Yeah. The white, yeah. Yeah. Still have all that the stuff that you had back then. Yeah. 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 Wow. An exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And we mentioned that we're mentioned of the first album. Actually, I actually want to go back again. Um, what was it like making the follow-up? Was it, I mean, they say difficult second album, was it? Yeah, I'd say it was different because I wanted to make it more vocal and more songy. Um so it's a different uh, way of doing things. Uh, and I don't think that was po- possibly the right time to be doing that. I think it should have just carried on being uh, like the first album. I really enjoyed working with Sonic, Um But at that time, I got a bit fed up of the whole merry-go-round of, the, of you know, the make album, do promotion, do radio, do photo session, do this, you know, and then back to, back to the beginning again. And I just thought, oh, God, you know, and I, just, I was... And I was missing DJing because I used to DJ all the time. Once I started doing S Express, I could hardly DJ as much uh, just because things were so busy doing, you know, interviews in Germany and France and here and there. And 
so yeah, I it, I was getting a bit a bit fed up with it all uh, at that point in time. Sunil kept me going because it was great working with her. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was it was a difficult second album <laughs> because of that. Uh, also, yeah, I'd been getting more into sort of in my spare time going out uh, to friends' raves and do's and stuff like that and getting off my head. So that was taking its toll. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, a fun, exciting time for you. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, we, I'm not putting on the spot with, with any of the samples, but I can imagine an album like the first one took quite a lot of, like, you know, clearing or things, you know, it's quite a lot of work to it. So maybe, you know, um, that would have been a long <coughs> well, process. It probably did take a little bit longer, but people didn't really know about it so much then. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, have it for 200 quid, whatever. <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's it. And um, so... I'm sort of conscious that we're running out of time, but I just wondered um, what other sort of projects you've got going on. We, we spoke about the, the soundscape thing that you're doing, um, which sounds fascinating. Anything yeah. else on the horizon that you could maybe mention that you're working on? Um, I'm just working on doing some tracks. And I'd rather not talk too much about them because uh, there will be collaborations with, with well-loved singers and and so forth but i don't want to say oh i'm working with blah blah and then it doesn't happen do you know Absolutely. what i mean no keep that and you want to just keep that a mystery and a bit of you know so when yeah, you run across it the, the excitement's there of course yeah, yeah as, soon as, we, as soon as we've got it down I, I can talk about it but until then at the moment we're just talking on the phone and swapping ideas and da, 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 yeah. um, regarding collaborations yeah yeah well that's yeah. good so when did you first start getting into electronic music um I, I remember being aware of electronic music and my fascination with it as a child, just listening to things like popcorn. And also just watching kids TV, like Doctor Who, the Radiophonic Orchestra and stuff like that. And I knew it was something different and something very futuristic and space agey, but I didn't really know what a synthesizer was or anything like that. And I am... Um, I, I do remember quite clearly hearing Kraftwerk's Autobahn because that was a hit hit record back in the day and thinking, oh, this is nice. So, you know, um, so I, I was always fascinated by this electronic kind of sound and, and the weirdness of it. But it was really when I started paying huge attention to it was in probably 1977. I remember being in bed with my transistor radio of a little earpiece listening to the chart rundown. And there were three records that I was obsessed with, and I, I kept waiting to hear them in the chart rundown. I think they're all at the same time. Maybe I'm remixing things in my mind, but I'm sure they're at the same time. The first one was Donna Summer, I Feel Love. And it was just like, wow, this is just, what is this? You know. And the second one was Space, Magic Fly. Oh, classic. And the third one was Jean-Michel Jarre, Oxygen. And, wow. um, yeah, I just remember thinking, oh, this is incredible. And then, um, uh, being a punk and then a the post-punk, uh, I remember going to see John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 oh, yeah. and being blown away by the soundtrack. And you couldn't buy the soundtrack in those days. I love John So, I, 
Yeah, I looked everywhere for the soundtrack, couldn't find it. And then one time um, John Pill played this new single by this brand new band called The Human League. Yeah. And it was called Being Boiled. <laughs> and my brother went, Mark, Mark, they've, they've, they've released the music from John Carpenter's Assault and Precinct 13. And we rushed out to buy it um, and took it home. And we played it and went, this isn't Assault and Precinct 13. And then we listened to it, just thought, but this is fucking brilliant. This is great. So we became Human League fans yeah. <laughs> immediately. I went to see them play like places like the Nashville, you know. <laughs> um, and then, uh, then yeah, yeah, they were darker then. And they went a bit more pop. Uh, yeah. And the audience would be people with like floppy haircuts and long um, green raincoat max, you know, with uh, read, reading the copy of Kafka, you know, with a pint of beer. <laughs> sitting there and waiting for them to come so many fans yeah. from that kind of late 70s you know the kind of post-punk and the new wave stuff yeah. I like punk but I thought it got more interesting when people started to experiment yeah exactly and the point like Cabaret Voltaire I'm a big fan of I yes. Like yes the electronics with the guitars you know yes yes Alien yeah. Sex Fiend actually I want um, I don't know, I'm sure I remember an interview with you and you mentioned Alien Sex Fiends because um, yeah. Alien Sex like one of used to be like one of my favorite bands when I was a teenager. Really? I kind of really? like when you want to like get something no one else is listening to, I kind of went for them, and that's yeah. a whole kind of punk and electronic. Exactly. Punk. Yeah. I adored Alien Sex Fiend, Ignore the Machine, the, the Electrode remix, which yeah. I used to play out. Oh, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, all this stuff was coming out and to us, you know, it was still punk it had the punk ethos you know i guess later late on it got called post-punk but to us it was still punk the human league the normal warm leatherette yeah. you know, when that came out tvod we were just like oh my god what is this so we got obsessed with that we got obsessed with um like you just said cabaret voltaire um and then of course throbbing gristle who i started going to see play everywhere yeah. so we, we were used to this kind of avant-garde music and i uh, my friend lived around the corner from Genesis Peorage. So oh. we'd go past his house and rummage through the dustbins and pull out all this amazing, like, thrown-away artwork and pornography. Yeah. yeah, and stuff like that. And one day he came out and to him and his wife and saw us and said, oh, it's you that's going through our dustbins. And they invited us in for tea. And we became friends wow. ever since. <laughs> wow. I miss you. Kept that stuff would just be, like, amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. How fantastic is all that? So, hey, yeah. And you mentioned, because uh, obviously um, you mentioned Jordan, but uh, yeah. other, uh, I would say, amazing lady that springs to mind is Princess Julia, who I know that you, you work Julia, with. Julia, yeah. How did you first get to meet or work with Princess Julia? And what? I'd see her around. Well, the first time I, I, I knew of her, she was in, in the NME with Steve Strange, and it said Steve Strange's girlfriend, Julia. Which was a load of rubbish. She wasn't his girlfriend. <laughs> um, so we kind of knew who she was before. She was like, you know, again, in the bubble that we lived with, it lived in. She was famous already. And um, I started going to the Blitz, Steve Strange's club, the Blitz. Not from the beginning, though. It was a bit later on I started going because I was living in North Finchley. I could hardly get there. Anyway, I started going there a bit late and I'd see her from afar and think, oh my God, she looks amazing. But we didn't actually become friends until much later. Um, uh, I guess probably probably 
just before the house stuff started happening. And then in the end, we started DJing together in Australia. We did a tour together DJing. And uh, when the Electric Clash scene happened, we were DJing on loads of things, you know, all over the place, all over the world, really. Uh, I still see her all the time. I saw the other day we went to the Freeze Art Fair. She's still around. She's still DJing. I saw her in that she was the recent documentary, I think, about the Blitz. I remember seeing her. Yeah, yeah. It's called Trance. I'm in that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I was going to mention yeah. that. So did you have to, when you went to the Blitz, did you have to, well, like, dress up? Because that was the thing, wasn't it? Yes, you had to dress up. Well, they wouldn't let no, you. I, I never looked that, that um, over the top, to be honest. I, I looked more painted. kind of... Huh? <laughs> Your face painted white, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, almost. Uh, I, I had more of a kind of James Deany post-punk rockabilly look. Oh. Uh, so I guess Steve Strange let me in because I look cute. I don't know. But I did put on this um, pale uh, powder on my face just to make me look not white, but just a bit kind of more pale yeah. uh, with a bit of eyeliner. It was a good look. And it got me That's in. Fun. Steve Strange let me in. So it's yeah. like a really, I mean, I love all that glamour and stuff, which I don't yeah. really see anymore. That's the, the fact, the theatrical stuff and the dressing up. I mean, some might say oh it's pretentious but i saw it's more like people just letting their hair down you know when you've had a busy week just to yeah. be different and escape and yeah exactly. well, i love I, I love reading about obviously i was a bit too young for that but obviously i've read books about you know the new romantic era and it's I've, never too late no i might go <laughs> get a little uh sailor's hat and yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> now i think i like i love reading about all that it just sounds like a, a fantastic and fun time yeah so uh, I well, it's gonna. Uh, apologies if you have already written one. Have you ever wrote a book or? Been a no, no. And the I, stories that you're telling me, I'm just thinking, what a crazy yeah. memoir! <laughs> I'll just, I'll be buying your memoir if it came out. Thank you. I keep writing bits, but I need to need to knuckle down to it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I wish that would happen one day because um, oh. I'd love to read more of your stories. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I just want to just thank you for spending some time today to talk to me, and I do appreciate. Oh. It's and, a pleasure, uh, Scott. It's been really yeah. good fun. Yeah, good luck with all future stuff that you're doing. Thank you. Same to you.